Hi, I'm Rick Steves. One of the most rewarding aspects of world travel is understanding different religions and how they shape different cultures. Coming up in the hour ahead, we're delving into Islam and Judaism. Two of my tour guide friends from Istanbul are stopping by to help us understand the fundamentals of Islam as practiced in Turkey, a modern nation that treasures its precious separation of mosque and state as much as most of us treasure the separation of church and state. We'll learn how Turks interpret the basic five pillars of Islam and what you should know to be comfortable traveling in a Muslim country. Then we'll talk with a Jewish woman in Rome whose family has lived in what became Rome's ghetto since the Jews first emigrated to Rome 2,000 years ago. Today, Rome's tiny ghetto is trendy and bursting with history, culture, and good food. We're exploring Islam and Judaism and taking your calls and emails on Travel with Rick Steves. Coming right up. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and when I'm in Muslim countries, every time I hear a call to prayer, I see a global wave of praise racing across the planet with the speed of a sunrise, proclaiming there's one God and He is great. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're venturing to Turkey, a land where East meets West, to learn more about Islam. And then we're delving into Judaism, specifically the Roman brand, by talking to a woman whose family has practiced their Jewish faith in Rome since the time of Christ. First, let's take some of your calls and emails. Contact us at 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. Barbara in Arizona, how are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? We are doing a Southern Italy tour. Uh, starts in Palermo, ends in Sorrento. But with our frequent flyer miles that we have, we're getting two days earlier into London, and we're staying there two days later and leaving out of London. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of looking for what are some fun things to meander our way there and after we get done with the tour. In London. Well, either in London or maybe we'll take a short jump over to Rome or... You know, I know it's kind of an abstract question. So, I, in other words, you've got a strict itinerary for this tour in southern Italy, and you've got a couple of days on either end, either in Rome or Naples or London. Is that the idea? Exactly. And we're thinking, you know, maybe at the end of the tour, maybe spending a couple of days in Sorrento. Yeah. I Personally, I think I would stay focused on Italy. And if you haven't done much of Rome, that would complement your experience in Sicily and Naples very nicely. Okay. I mean, obviously, there's lots to do in London if you wanted to do London, but that's a whole different mindset. And it's kind of exciting to get into Italy, you know, get your get your bearings before your tour, get comfortable with how to order a cappuccino and what kind of wine you like and so on. Yeah, Dewey cappuccino. Exactly. That's very good. You're Dewey cappuccini. How's that? Cappuccini, that's yeah. right. So you gotta you gotta think of uh, this the singular, the plural, and the masculine and the feminine. I'm I'm uh, lucky just to get the singular and the plural. But yeah, um, we're we're both working on our Italian as we speak. And then when your tour is done, it's really nice to take a little victory lap on your own afterwards, without the guide and the people and everything. And and that's why it's kind of nice to savor it for a couple of days there before flying home. So. I would favor Italy over England in this case. You know, if you get a good guidebook to Rome, I was just in Rome updating my guidebook, and, you know, I've been going back to Rome almost every year for 25 years, and I can never exhaust what it has to see, and there's always new exciting things to check out. So, uh, It's you know. a beautiful place. Um, my other question was, one of the other options we were thinking of is flying into Naples, where the tour ends, and then taking a ferry over to Palermo. I've done that, and it was a wonderful way to get to uh, Sicily from uh, Italy, is just to take the night train or the night boat from mm-hmm. Naples to Palermo and it's a romantic evening uh, as you sail out of Naples and then you arrive first thing in the morning in Palermo it's a it's a painless way to get down to Sicily and then just hop on a there's hop tax- on a bus and get to the group then. yeah there's taxis waiting at, at the harbor there when your boat comes in and right. when I did that, it was an ungodly hour in the morning, but no problem. Yeah. I just had a taxi waiting, and I went to the hotel. They took my bag. The room wasn't ready. I, I just uh, had a breakfast, and I'm on my way. Wow. Have fun. Hey, thanks, and Rick. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. We're talking to John from Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, John. Hi, Rick. How good are you to doing? Talk, talk to you. My wife and I are big fans. Oh, good. Well, thanks for your call. What are you thinking about? Well, uh, actually, I was thinking about what you might want to talk about. We're retired, and we do a lot of traveling, and in the past year, we've hit a few interesting places. Where have you been Uh, in the last year? Kamchatka, a uh, Ural Pass swing through Europe, and uh, Botswana. 
So uh, my goodness. Well, now first, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, Kamchatka. I just thought that was uh, part of the Risk board in that game. Do you know? Have you ever played Risk? No. It's a big part of the Siberia, isn't it? It, it is an exotic place. What is you know, Kamchatka? It's, the, uh, it's that peninsula that hangs down from Siberia towards uh, China. During the Soviet era, it was all a uh, off-limits uh, military reservation. There's still a uh, Soviet, a, a Russian naval presence at the main city, uh, Petropavlovsk, but the uh, the rest of the, the peninsula is heavily wooded and full of, uh, I think, twenty odd volcanoes and wow. a couple of dozen marvelous salmon streams and fifteen thousand grizzly bears. How big a part of the the scene is the tourist industry there, John? They currently have uh, about, uh, I think, 8,000 Russian tourists a year and about 8,000 foreign tourists a year. Most of the foreign tourists come in for the salmon fishing and some hunting of uh, grizzlies. But the tourist infrastructure is not very well developed. There are a few decent hotels in the main city, Petropavlovsk, and Mm. then various guest houses here and there. For uh, people who are interested in the wild country and uh, the wildlife and the the, uh, native cultures and the marvelous, incredible volcanic scenery. Now, this is basically what we think of as Siberia, isn't it? It's the coast of Siberia? Yeah. Well, technically speaking, Siberia is uh, more towards the center, uh, uh, Lake Baikal, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the Kamchatsky Oblast in the uh, Russian federal system. Now, does does Alaska Airlines still fly from Anchorage over to Kamchatka? No. There's a Russian airline, Magadan, Magadan Airline. From where? Airlines that flies from Anchorage. Huh. So you can fly from Anchorage to Kamchatka. Our flight happened to go by way of Anadir, which is on that little piece of uh, Siberia stretching towards Alaska. Now, has modernity and reasonable affluence spread across Russia, or do you still find that you're dropping in there like these incredibly rich uh, people from another planet, and you got a few uh, peasants out there in the fields eating turnips? Well, it's a very mixed mixed bag. Uh, In Petropavlovsk, there are a couple of very modern supermarkets with electronic checkout and all that. It's uh, it's the remains of a typical Soviet city. (laughs) Must be fascinating. Uh, yeah, and and in the uh, bigger cities like uh, Irkutsk, which we saw a few years ago, people are living by their wits and, on the whole, doing quite well. They're sort of on the economic level of a mid-level Mexican city like okay. MC or something like well, that. Well, that's, that's uh, encouraging. Uh, but once you get outside the major cities, you find a lot of uh, towns that have been left sort of high and dry by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Hmm. And uh, people there are reverting to a subsistence economy. Wow. And and that's why uh, tourism, I think, is going to be very important for Kamchatka in the, in the future. But for the present, uh, people would be best advised to find a tour company that could organize an expedition for them and make the local arrangements, etc. What was the single most vivid moment you can recall from your travel adventures in the last year? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> in the last year? Yeah. Um, well, I probably uh, probably Botswana, seeing uh, life in the delta, the Okavango Delta, with uh, small herds of impala and zebra wandering around, and uh, packs of lions prowling, looking for their next dinner, and it was uh, it's a unique experience. Nature thriving. On a more civilized vein, there were a couple of things I wanted to mention in connection with our European uh, rail pass trip last fall. What's that? Uh, we largely followed your advice on everything, but we discovered that on the French TGV system, at least, the seats allotted for rail pass holders are capacity controlled. That is, you may take your rail pass down and try to make a reservation on a given train and be told, sorry, there's no space. Wow. But if you went up with cash, you could buy a seat on that train. In mm-hmm. other words, it's, it's, it seems to be rather like airlines. Yeah. And um, that knowledge doesn't seem to be generally 
Now, uh, spread around. Those would be the express trains, the intercities. Uh, yeah, the TGV, TGV. Uh, high-speed trains. Well, and that's why they require... Supremely comfortable. you got to get reservations. More and more trains in Europe require reservations, that's, even uh, if you have a rail pass, which... That, that's right. In the old days, a rail pass, just like you go anywhere you want anytime. But now, because of these super trains, I think they control the uh, traffic a little more. I right. was just in Italy, and even to take a small hop on the Eurostar in Italy, you got to make a $15, 12-euro reservation. So that's good advice for travelers. Yes. Another uh, little tip is that if you have any uh, affinity connections with, for example, I'm retired from the Air Force, and the French uh, Cercle des Armées, the French Officers Club uh, for the military, has a couple of lodgings in Paris, Hmm. and uh, allied military types can get rooms there. Really? So we found ourselves in a very comfortable little uh, hotel. Where was owned that? By, owned by them in the uh, Latin Quarter. Wow. Just a few steps from the Pantheon, and we paid 63 euros 50 per night for it. Well, now, and that's a very interesting retired American military staying in French military uh, club quarters. Right. Very uh, cool. Everybody's very friendly, and yeah. uh, who knows? You you may be a member of some club that has an affiliation with some French or Italian or what have you, you know, organization. And anything you can do to get inside track to connect with real people in your travels, people to right. people. Exactly. Well, John exactly. Perry from Alexandria, thank you so much for your call. Okay. And happy travels. Good talking to you, friend. Bye now. Bye-bye. Elena emails us from Medford, Massachusetts. And Elena comments, What are the negatives for travel to Egypt with a group of American tourists at this time? Well, anytime you're traveling to a developing nation or a, uh, a nation outside of Europe, you got to remember if you're with a group of Americans, you're very high profile, and everybody's aware that you guys are just filthy rich, or at least that's what they assume. Uh, realize you're going to be attracting merchants, and uh, anybody you stumble into is camped out waiting for your group. That sort of poisons the ambience, I think. I try best I can when I'm in a place like Egypt or Morocco or Turkey to get away from the group. Take off that little pin that identifies you with your group. When your group goes into a, into a shop, everybody's got their welcome pin on, well, that just tells the merchant which guide gets the kickback. So you want to disguise the fact that you're with a group, get oriented, get a map, skip out a lunch if you have to, lose yourself in the back streets of Cairo. One of my favorite experiences in Cairo is to hop in a taxi and just let him drive me through the old city with the music blasting up from his radio and the windows down, and it's just a wild experience. While you're traveling through these uh, more exotic and demanding uh, cultures, remember uh, you're more safe to leave your valuables in the hotel room than to have it on you. And remember, it's just uh, you don't need a list of famous sites. You want to go to the markets, get out and wander around and give yourself a cultural scavenger hunt. I think you'll find more travel thrills per hour in cities like Cairo or Marrakesh or Istanbul than you will in places like Dublin or Copenhagen or Berlin. Paul in Chicago emailed us, I was deeply moved by the Shanakale Gallipoli War Memorial in Turkey. I had seen the movie with Mel Gibson, but was shocked at how profoundly it affected me to see the many memorials for both sides of the conflict. Ataturk's ultimate cry for peace is immortalized there. If only today's leaders experienced war firsthand as Ataturk did, they might be more inclined to seek diplomatic resolutions to conflicts. One of the challenges for many Western visitors to Muslim nations like Turkey is knowing how to feel comfortable in a society whose religious beliefs and practices seem so different from your own. Coming up, we'll learn some of the basics of Islam with my Turkish friends Tan and Lali Aran. It's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Ik ben Ferdi Mengi en ik ben van België. En ik reis met Rick Steves. Now, that was Flemish. And it means I am Ferdi Mengi from Belgium. And I travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. And this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now we're thinking about uh, Americans traveling in Islam. Because Islam as a traveler, it, it confuses me. And I've got with me Lali Sermon and Tan Aran, two tour guides from Turkey. And Lali and Tan are about as modern as I can imagine, and they are both practicing Muslims. Lali and Tan, thank you for being here today. Thank you, thank Rick. You, Rick. Now, when Americans are thinking of going to Turkey, which is one of my favorite countries, uh, with the uh, tension between the Islamic world and the Christian world right now, are there any things that Americans should be aware of? Are we welcome in uh, in Turkey? Uh, can we go there and learn about the mosques? Uh, what are some insights yes, for us? Yes, Americans are most welcome in Turkey, even more than the past, because the Turkish people, especially when they see Americans, they want to express that they accept American citizens as human beings. In other words, regardless of our government's exactly, foreign policy. Exactly. Turkish people, through their own experiences, through their own governmental experiences, have learned over the years, have learned to separate the government from the individuals. For instance, what percent of the Turkish people opposed our war in Iraq? A major percent Maybe opposed, about 70, 80 percent. But of your the... government still supported our government. Yes, it did. No, it didn't. It didn't, no. finally. Mm -mm. But it was quite a, quite a struggle in your country, a lot of pressure from America. Yes, it was, and uh, the Turkish people didn't want to be part of the military operation. So democracy won in Turkey. Democracy won. It was voted in the parliament, and it was, it was voted not to take part militarily, and Turkey didn't. Even with pressure from America. Exactly. Now, Turkey is an Islamic nation, 70 million people, bigger than the size of California, but a modern Islamic nation. And a lot of Americans, I think, get Islam confused. You're not Arabic, you're Turkish. Now, tell me in Turkey, what is the state of Islam today? First of all, Turkey is a democracy and everybody has the free choice of whatever religion they want to practice. Because of the heritage of what Turkish Republic is today, majority of our population are Muslims. And everybody practices it the way they want. Now, would you say the population of Turkey is uh, nominally Muslim or actually practicing Muslim? Uh, about 98% of the population are considered Muslim, but we can't know how many of them are practicing Muslims because there's not a questionnaire to find it out. Now, you're not wearing a, a burqa and no, you're dressed as a modern woman and you function as a businesswoman in Turkey today. You're well-educated, university-educated, married to Ton. And you're Muslim. Do you? Yes. How do you reconcile that with uh, people who cover themselves up and are Muslims and have a different approach? I respect it. If it's their sincere choice, I respect it. And the way I look is my own personal choice. So it should be also respected. And that's the case in Turkey. If you want, you can cover up. Or if you want, you can look like an American does, which most of the Turkish women chose to do. But it's a personal choice. Lali, to... Um, distill Islam into the famous five pillars of Islam is as simplistic as distilling Christianity down into the Ten Commandments. Yes. But for a lot of travelers, when they think about Islam, uh, they try to understand it by remembering these five, what they call, pillars of Islam. Very that's quickly. The what, that's how the non-Muslims remember of Islam. That's right. not how Muslims remember of Islam. I'm a non-Muslim. Right. Help me remember this. Just very quickly. The first pillar? Is having faith. Uh, declaring that you have faith in God, in oneness of God, and Muhammad as his prophet, as the last prophet. The second one would be performing your prayer on a regular basis. Five times a day. Five times a day. The third one would be fasting during the month of Ramadan. The fourth one would be giving alms. Every Muslim is to give 2.5% of their yearly income to the poor and needy, on the condition that uh, they can feed and take care of their families properly. And number five? Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. Do the Hajj. Go to Mecca. Hajj is the pilgrimage to Mecca. I just, want, I just don't want people to think that Islam is all about those five pillars because it's not. It's more of a lifestyle. It's more of an understanding of life, this life and afterlife, and understanding how you should be living this life, what kind of a person you should be. And it should be considered as a whole instead of 
part by part. Okay. It's not enough. Can we talk about the five pillars now? Yes, we can Good. talk about the five pillars. Okay, let's talk about the first one, Lolly. It is believing in the oneness of God and believing that Muhammad is the last prophet. There can't as one. Uh, for Muslims, it's very important to acknowledge that there is one God. Exactly. Allah. That, that's the key thing of Islam, now, that there uh, is one God. You're a Muslim. I'm a Christian. Uh, I call God God. You call God Allah. Is that just a translation? Is it the same guy? He's the same guy. I call water Su. You call Su water. Okay. As a Christian, Jesus was the Son of God, our Savior. You have. Uh, what's your take on Jesus then? For the Muslims, Jesus is not the Son of God, but the soul of God. Hmm. A major prophet. Okay. In the Quran, which is the holy book of the Muslims, it lists names of 28 prophets. Huh. And it includes Jesus Christ, to give some examples, Solomon, David, and Moses, and Abraham, and Adam. And it says that in the Quran, to consider yourself as Islam, you shouldn't only believe Muhammad, but to all that was sent with the message of God. And Jesus was a little special because he's the soul of God. Yes. But Muhammad is... The last prophet. And he was from around the year 600. Yes. No, nobody after that. Baha'u'llah no. didn't make it. No. No. Gandhi? No. Bob Marley? No. <laughs> okay. Not even Beatles. <laughs> Not even the Beatles. Okay. Not, now, you got to pray five times a day. Yes. Why five? Because it says so in the Quran. Okay. So there's some wisdom in the Quran that you respect. Mm-hmm. Some people say that's just um, ad- advice to get out and breathe and exercise and stretch. Anything to that? You can make many different comments about it. You can stretch, especially some of the Because pray- the Muslim prayer is a form of meditation. It is very similar to what people know as yoga, that you meditate, you stretch yourself, you reflect with yourself, get a moment away from the rush of the world and have a chance to breathe a little bit spiritually and physically. And there's a call to prayer across Islam from the Philippines to Morocco. It's just like with the speed of the globe, you hear this call to prayer and people are praising God. Yes. Five times a day. Yes. It's like a global wave. And in a stadium in America, we have this wave. And all these people are praising God with their prayers as the sun whips around the planet. Exactly. What are the five? There must be like dawn, high noon. Is it, does it break out any way that way? When do they have the call to prayer? Uh, of course, it doesn't say with like at noon or 3 p.m. The times of the prayer change with the position of the moon and they're described in the Quran. Like for the first prayer of the day, which is really early in the morning, it says that you should be performing your prayer when you can see the white hair from the black hair, when you can see the different colors. So when there's it's enough the time. light. I like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. Such kind of descriptions. It would be slightly before the sunrise, and we have another one in the midday around noon, another one in the afternoon, and it's described as when your shadow is twice the length of yourself. Perfect. And there's an evening and there's a night. So your watch is broken, the battery's out. You can it, still know when to pray because yeah. your shadow's you twice as long as you. get a measure and measure now, I've been on a bus in Afghanistan where they stopped the bus and everybody got out at a certain time. They actually will enforce that in an Islamic country. Not in Turkey. Not in Turkey. No, that's that's not a in different Turkey. interpretation again uh, because when you're traveling, uh, you may not. You may skip that. Oh, you have a little, um, a little slack yeah, when you're traveling. So many travelers, when they first land in Morocco or Egypt or Turkey, they're startled in the morning when they hear this call to prayer. When we hear the call to prayer, uh, if you're not a practicing Muslim, Does everybody stop what they're doing? I mean, would it be polite for a tourist to uh, acknowledge the call to prayer some way? No. In Turkey, life goes on. So as a visitor, there's nothing special that you'll be doing or you'll need to be doing when you hear the call to prayer. So if I'm talking, if I'm playing backgammon, just keep going. Just keep going. So the third pillar, or do the numbers matter? Which number doesn't matter? Not at all. No. Mm -mm. So one of the pillars is fasting. Fasting is? Fast during the daytime. And they are allowed to eat during the nighttime. And when we say fast, nothing goes through their mouth. The time that the fasting starts is the first call to prayer in the morning. So it's before the sunrise. And it continues till the evening prayer. So between these four prayers, Muslims don't eat or drink anything. After the evening call to prayer, they are then allowed to eat and drink until the next morning's 
call to prayer. So each year for one month, this is the period of Ramadan. Yes. And there's no eating, uh, basically as long as the sun is up. More or less, yes. Can you drink? No. Nothing? Nothing goes through the mouth. No water? No water. Wow. And you've done this all your life? Uh, Rick, in Turkey, the practice of Islam or practice of religion is observed on an individual basis. You can't generalize. Okay. So some people take this seriously, others will Or some fast half, some half of the month, some don't. It's totally on an individual basis. Is that right? It, there's not a head count of people who is fasting and who is not fasting. There's not a head count of people who is going to the mosque or not going. No head count. Because I've been in Morocco on Ramadan when mm-hmm. everybody is poised with their soup and their spoon ready, and as soon as the call to prayer happens, it's okay. Not in Turkey. Not in Turkey. No. This is called uh, Ramadan, and this changes every year a little bit, the time yes, of Ramadan. because the Muslim calendar is 11 days shorter than the Gregorian calendar. So the time shifts a little earlier every year. And when we say devout Muslims do fast, cannot eat and drink while the sun is up, but we should also open a parenthesis and say that only health-wise they're able to do it. Mm. If they are not, this body is given to us to take care well of it. You mm-hmm. can't torture it. You don't have such a right to torture your body. So if you're not able to do it, it's not entitled upon you. Now, what is the purpose of fasting if you're able to do it? Is there some value for this? Yes, there is. It is a self-discipline. It's a self-discipline of your body, self-discipline of your soul. And remembering God and getting closer to God as much as possible Now, what about this? Uh, During Ramadan, when uh, many devout Muslims are fasting all day long from sunup to sundown, Mm -hmm. uh, I feel uncomfortable eating and drinking around people who are fasting. What is is the thoughtful, appropriate way for a non-Muslim to uh, function during the fasting month of Ramadan? If you know that the people you are socializing are fasting, it's a nice custom not to eat and drink around them, just to honor what they are going through. But there is no rule about that. You can eat, If you're not a Muslim, if you're not practicing the act of Ramadan, you can eat and drink as you like. And can you still find restaurants open? And yes, so on? No all problem. around Turkey. Absolutely exactly. no problem. No problem. And actually, I can recommend travelers to be in Istanbul during Ramadan because it's really very festive, especially the center of the old town. Little booths are established. Foods from different regions are brought in. You can buy them from the stalls. Little tables, little chairs are but is established. That a, a little festival that happens after the sun goes down. Yes. So every day there's a mini festival when the yes. sun goes down. But if you're if you're not observing the fasting, you can eat earlier. You don't All have right. to wait you for get the first la- in line. Now the other pillar is that you must make a pilgrimage. Going to Hajj. Going to Hajj. That means going to Mecca. Is that right? To Mecca. To Hajj. And I've once had, in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime, you as a Muslim, you're supposed That's to go a must for the to Mecca. There are conditions. Okay. Uh, You might be health conditions that are avoiding you from such a travel, then it's not a must for you. It's not a cheap trip. You can't afford it, then it's not a must for you. A must for an individual is to be able to properly take care of the family first. And if they can have excess money above it, then it is upon them that they perform the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina. If you physically can't manage it or if you don't have enough money money to go there, what would you do as an alternative? If you have money, what you can do is that you can sponsor a poor person's trip to Mecca and Medina. Okay, so if you're too frail to go, you could, and you have the money, sponsor mm-hmm. somebody else. And if else. you don't have the money, there's nothing you ha- you're supposed to do. Now, I've heard modern Muslims explain to me that this was uh, Muhammad's idea that it's just healthy to get out and see a little bit of the world. As a matter of fact, uh, 1,400 years ago, Muhammad said, don't tell me how educated you are. Tell me how much you've traveled. Exactly. Is there something to that? Is that why this Hajj is such a big deal, in part? Hajj is becoming one. I mean, once in a lifetime, people go there together to perform namaz, to perform salat together. It's being one with God. So when, that's, when we look the at this... The idea is not to forget the past. It's to be, it's to be there with the other people and uh, get, get this unity. There. Well, we so have that's the idea. we have Eucharist. It's a sort of oneness. Also, together we we think of Jesus. Exactly. When we have the so communion. So uh, that's the idea. What's that big stone called in Mecca? The black stone. The black stone. That's mm-hmm. the center, isn't it? With this mosque around it. Where people walk around. Yeah. It's not a black stone, Rick. Maybe I need to correct a misunderstanding or misknowledge about it. Teach me. It's 
what people walk around in Mecca as they perform their pilgrimage actually is a stone building and it has got the color of the sand that you would see in Saudi Arabia. It's a building. Muslims believe that it is the first building ever built for the prayer of single God in earth. To worship one God. Exactly. It is believed that it was built physically by Abraham himself. And that's what Muslims consider the center of their religion. And what you see as black is the cover that is put over it to protect it. Okay. Now, when we look at this, hordes of people. That are walking around And you read newspaper accounts of tens of people who are trampled to death because of all this. It really is this huge gathering of people and this ritualistic oneness that people do. And it's probably Mm -hmm. a a very exciting pinnacle in the spiritual life of of a Muslim person. It is. And there's another black thing, which is known as the black stone. These two things are different from one another. There's a special black stone that is in Kaaba within that big building, which is covered with black, which is believed to descend from the heaven. Okay. Was that a meteor? I don't know. I haven't seen it myself. Stoning that, uh, throwing stones at that is throwing stones at your own uh, self. It's getting away from yourself and uh, it's the the physical self you're getting rid of and there's the soul. Now, the the fifth pillar of Islam is giving money to the poor. Yes. And this means uh, exactly what? This exactly means that First of all, if you can take care of your family, feed your family properly, take care of your children properly, and if you have excess money left afterwards, Mm -hmm. you should also consider the other members of the society you live in. Because we are not beasts living in the wilderness. It's a society and everybody needs to support one another for a survival. That's the essence of it. And if you have excess money after taking care of your family, then you should be taking care of the poor and needy in your society. In Turkey, this is completely practiced on a private level. There is no imam or no government authority knocks on the door of someone saying that this is the yearly time for you to pay alms. You do it very privately and directly to the people that you think need the help. Now, when I was in Turkey once, I was in the rural area in the east, and I went into a man's house, and he knew I was a Christian, and he was a Muslim, and he pointed to the wall, and he had a bag where his, his scriptures were, his Quran, I guess, and he said, as if I was part of his spiritual family, we are people of the book, I think he said, something yes, like this. Yes, people of the book. Tell me more about that. For uh, In the Quran, the statement says that for Christians and Jews, as they are mentioned in the Quran, they are mentioned as the people of the book. So there's a um, unity there. It's a yes. uh, acceptance. Yes. These yes. are all people who believe in one God. Exactly. And they have uh, their scriptures. And this man had – that was the most s- sacred and respected place in his house where he stored his book, mm-hmm. his Quran. Yes. And the Bible is as sacred and the Old Testament is as sacred. And the Jewish Torah. Yes. And the Jewish Torah is as sacred. Sounds not that threatening to me. No. This is fascinating. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Up next, we're calling a young woman whose family emigrated from Jerusalem to Rome 2,000 years ago. We're visiting Rome's Jewish ghetto. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now I want to travel specifically to the Jewish community in Rome. And I learned on my last trip to Rome that the Jewish community goes back, way back till before the time of Christ in Rome, and there's actually people whose families have can be traced back to those days. I have on the phone with me from Rome's uh, Jewish uh, district a tour guide who is uh, from a family that goes back 2,000 years, and she is just a marvelous guide offering an insight into her community in Rome, Michaela Pavoncello. Michaela, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's nice, yeah, to think that in a city so globalized and so modern, even though it seems so ancient, like Rome, Caput Mundi, there is still a community of 16,000 people that can trace their roots back in 2,000 years, because as you correctly said, we settled in Rome directly from coming directly from Jerusalem. Even before Titus destroyed the Temple of Solomon, we were already here because uh, we didn't like how this uh, Greek king Antiochus was treating us in Jerusalem. 
At that time, the Jews were suffering about this uh, uh, king that we didn't want them to study the Torah, which is the most important thing for them. And it was common to put statues in our temples. So when we fed up with the situation, we decided to come to Rome. And asking protection to the Romans really helped, because that is when the Romans took power in Palestine and probably got even worse. But okay, we tried, and uh, and we decided to stay in Rome a little bit, and we never went away. Okay. And uh, but the Jews liked Rome and decided to stay, and also they they could start a business in Rome, importing and exporting spices. Uh, and you know, we're very good in that, so mm-hmm. uh, it was very easy to start developing a new a new life. And now they're totally integrated with the, in the city, and they're actually the most ancient uh, um, people living in Rome because they never moved from here. They are the original Romans. Now, Michaela, people know about Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazi Jews, right? Now, yes. You, but there's actually the Roman Jews do not... They're not part of either of that group, or explain that to us very briefly. You're right, because so we are the Nusach Romani, so we are the third right, since we didn't pass through uh, Eastern Europe or Spain. We came directly from Israel. That's why we our liturgy is the closest to, to the Temple of Jerusalem, because we moved here when it was already working and it was not destroyed yet. Now, how many Jews today live in Rome? Uh, 16,000 Jews 16, in Rome 000. and 35,000 in all Italy. And uh, they seem many more because their traditions are so strong. And uh, people think that we have a million of Jews in Rome, but there are only 0.9% of the population of Rome, which is 6 million people. Now, and just to review this for our listeners, uh, during the diaspora, we, th- we think of the Ashkenazi Jews that came through Eastern Europe, and then the Sephardic Jews who descended basically from Spain. And then you're saying the 16,000 Jews in Rome actually are neither of those communities. They go directly back to ancient Palestine, and they came straight to Rome during the Roman Empire. Of course, during the Inquisition, a lot of Jews escaping from Spain moved to Rome. Michaela, because of that, how is your uh, practice of Judaism different than the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi Jews? Well, the Israeli rabbinate think that we are not enough Jews because we have been very flexible during the centuries because we had to face so many different obstacles and the Vatican so close didn't help us to be um, proper Jews uh, respecting all the laws. So we were more traditional-based Jewish people. And, and we respect all the festivities. We do, kosher, we do cook the same food uh, during the main uh, celebrations. We do have a dialect uh, which is called Judaico-Romanesco, and you are probably more familiar with the Yiddish, which which is uh, the language that the Jews would were used to speak in Eastern Europe in their little villages. But in Rome, we speak another dialect, which is a mix of Roman slang and Hebrew. So this Jewish community grew up literally under the Pope. The Pope was the king until the 19th century, and you were subjects of the Pope, the Catholic Pope. Absolutely. He decided that it was absurd and inconvenient. Paul IV in 1555 decided that it was absurd and inconvenient that Jews and Christians were living together. So he decided to close the Jews in a closed area, four blocks, very tiny and very seedy because of the river floods. So then for more than a thousand years, Jews were living with Romans. And then in the 1500s, the Pope said, we've got to put you, a uh, Jewish community, into a, a walled community of four blocks. Yes. And did they that actually preserved them from the plague. That's the name of that illness the that plague. spread out all over Europe. Yes, because they were segregated, so they were not. Uh, um, they didn't have the chance to go out. They were really, really miserable. We think about Jews today as uh, very rich people, but they, the Jews of Rome were literally miserable and humble. They could only sell rags and uh, they couldn't do any kind of job that could lead them to, you know, good places in the society. Now, the Jewish community was uh, directed to live in a terrible bit of floodland next to the island in the Tiber River, just in the most miserable real estate in, in Rome. Uh, t- yeah, that's funny, because today that area is the most expensive of Rome. 
because uh, uh, whenever, I don't know, maybe because it's so ancient and it's built on an archaeological area uh, that belonged to Augustus' time. Actually, the main entrance of the ghetto is the famous Arch of Octavia, who was Augustus' sister. So people now have Roman columns in their toilet. <laughs> they wow. complain all the time because they don't make work properly, the pipes of, the, of their toilet. But uh, what can you do? If you live in Rome, you have ruins everywhere. And sometimes they are nice, and sometimes they can give you trouble. And so in the ghetto, there are beautiful apartments today, uh, very humble from outside, but renovated inside. And it's now a very trendy area uh, full of artists uh, and um, art galleries, antiquity shops. And of course, still the women of the ghetto, the old lady that eats uh, sunflower seeds and gossip all day long. Now, Michaela, tell me what the Jewish community, paint a picture for our listeners about the Jewish community in the 1600s and the 1700s in Rome. You're in this four-block area along the Tiber River in Rome. What was life like? Well, it was really, really miserable since they couldn't go out and the blocks were so narrow, the streets were so tiny that no sky could reach, was visible and no, no sun could reach the ground. So it was very wet, very dark. And you know, the, the ghetto was um, meant to host only 2,000 people, but they became 9,000 in few, in few years. They were trying to, to, to work, but no jobs were allowed to them. So only, only selling Schmatte, which is an English word that we don't use, but all my clients know, and it means rags, mm. which is something that still belongs to the community, because today the Jews of Rome own are especially in the clothes business, so they sell clothes in their shops, and that's why probably the Roman population think that we have that we are so many because uh, when it's Yom Kippur, which is the fasting day for the Jews, uh, all the clo- all the shops are closed, so nobody can buy anything. Okay, so Michaela, we've got a four-block district in Rome with nine thousand people packed into it, surrounded by a wall. How did yes. the, how did the Christians all around the Jewish community um, accept them, or how did they shape their minds and their children and so on? What what was the um, relationship that way between the two communities? Well, let's say first of all that all the Romans uh, were in a miserable condition um, during that time, but uh, the Jews were always frustrated and uh, accused. Uh, you have to remember that the accuse of killing Christ was disappeared kind of 30 years ago. But until 30 years ago, we were accused of killing Christ for the, for the Christian outside the ghetto was a game on carnival, for example, putting the Jews inside barrels and thrown them from the Spanish steps down the street of Via del Corso, just for fun. So Mm. we were humiliated being taken on a horse and vegetables were thrown in the faces of the old Jews or the old rabbis. Michaela, when I was with you, you gave me a beautiful tour of the ghetto. You told me about a convent actually positioned inside the ghetto to to raise the children with Christian ideas, and outside of every gate surrounding the wall, there was a church sort of uh, like an advertisement for Christianity as they went in and out of the ghetto. Can you explain a little more about that? Yes, sure. You are going to be amazed if you come to Rome to see how many churches the city has. But the ghetto area is um, something different because every corner has got a church. Whenever you step outside, there is a church. So the borders are limited by churches because churches were there for an activity of brainwashing the Jews. The Jews were obliged to go and listen to the Holy Mass, especially on Shabbat, which is the holiday for the Jews. So they were obliged to go and listen to the priest insulting them, brainwashing them, trying to to convert them, and that was probably the most painful thing. But I can tell you that really, really few people did convert, because otherwise they would be considered betrayers from Christians and from Jews. And the convent there inside the ghetto was mostly used for kidnapping kids, baptize them and uh, send them back to the family. So you are a mom and you have your kids kidnapped and then he comes back and he's accusing you of killing Christ and he's a new Christian. So you have to decide what to do with that. You have to deal with that. So it was really painful. And um, in a city so big with, with so many different cultures, the Jewish community has the proud to be still there among uh, uh, other cultures. I went to Rome for 20 years before I 
ever visited the ghetto. And finally, with you, you gave me a beautiful walk through the ghetto. Take us on just a one-minute walk and tell us what it's like to, what will you see today? Walk us just through the ghetto and paint a picture of how the ghetto is uh, in the 21st century. Well, today it's much more beautiful. You can see how trendy it is because uh, when Rome became capital in 1870, they destroyed uh, the municipality, couldn't show the shame. So they destroyed all these narrow, tiny little streets where no light uh, was possible to uh, to see. And uh, they opened wider roads because the king could uh, possibly pass with his car. So today you see this amazing synagogue built in 1901-1904 in a Syro-Babylonian style because they thought it was the only period of history where the Jews didn't suffer. So there is this beautiful synagogue in uh, in this style with Art Nouveau decoration and then beautiful tiny little streets still but with uh, more light uh, and this beautiful square in the middle, pedestrian, where where the Jewish school is still today and where the kids can go out and have a kosher lunch and and just walk and play football in the in the square with these beautiful old ladies chatting and gossiping eating the cakes from the Jewish bakery which still gives uh, recipes uh, dating back three centuries. So it is, I think you tried the cheesecake and chocolate, didn't that's, you? That's right. You took me to a wonderful Jewish bakery. Or the, yeah, and we had uh, the Jewish pizza. Yes, yes. Mm. This pizza is a, is a fruitcake. Uh, it's sweet and it's a, it's a hundred calories, uh, maybe a million calories. And it, it's a bomb of candied fruits, pine nuts, almond. And uh, it's a must, uh, and all the people now know about it uh, and come to the gate, especially on Sundays, to try these amazing uh, cakes uh, that are only in the Jewish gate are available. Now, Michaela, you, you still feel a community for the, the Roman Jews, even though many of them live in different parts of the city. When you walk through the small four-block area that is where the ghetto was, it seems people still come here and they feel their community right there in the traditional heartland of Roman Jewry. Yeah, absolutely. I think that since, as I told you, this community has never been a very intellectual community. You have to believe that my father, for example, is only 55 and he's the first one of his family that went to study. So these people doesn't go to JCC as we, as the other Jews in the, in the world do, American Jewish centers. They just meet in the squares and they chat and they talk. It's like a forum. I think it comes from the Roman times, uh, talking in the squares, open air, chatting, meeting with people, exchanging, gossiping and news. And yeah, I saw old women that actually brought their folding chairs from home. To the, yes, yes, the that's another, it's another tradition. Some of them don't live here anymore because you have to know that the ghetto buildings now are very expensive. So these ladies bring their chairs from home with their buses and then they meet with their friends in the ghetto and they spend the day there chatting, as I told you, and they, if you walk by, they will look at you and they will ask you who you are and they want to know everything. So they are kind of the columns of the Jewish community of Rome. I, they are, in charge of finding me a husband, for example. (laughs) Okay. Um, Something very tragic happened in the ghetto on October 16, 1943. There's actually a square named October 16, 1943. Can you explain that? Yes, you're right, because we were during the Nazi occupation, and while uh, World War II was spreading out all over Europe, even in Rome, the Nazi were occupying the city, and they asked 50 kilos of gold to the Jewish community in order to avoid the concentration camps to the Jews of Rome. And they were very naive because they thought that the Pope would protect them, but actually that didn't happen. So even though they collected the gold, which is 110 pounds uh, of gold during the war, which is a huge amount, they were deported. 2,000 of the 13,000 Jews at that time were taken to Auschwitz, and only 16 survived and got back. So from that square that you have seen, 16 October 1943, the Nazi trucks were collecting the Jews 
on a Shabbat morning and took them directly to Auschwitz. I'm talking with Michaela Pavoncello, whose family uh, goes back in the Jewish community of Rome for nearly 2,000 years. And Michaela is a tour guide, an excellent tour guide. I spent a day with her on my last trip to Rome. And if you want the specifics on Michaela's work, go to our website at ricksteves.com. Look in the radio corner, and you'll learn about uh, Michaela's website and the work that she does. Also, a very uh, exciting kind of reconciliation has gone on in the last generation with the Jewish community and the rest of Rome. Uh, and the Pope actually visited uh, your synagogue, is that right? Yes, he came in April 1986. I remember it very well, even though I was only 10 years old. But the, the synagogue was all blue with flowers. And, uh, you know, John Paul II had always this beautiful attitude uh, towards the Jews, probably because he has passed through Nazism, communism, World War One, World War Two. So he really and he had a lot of Jewish friends. So as soon as he came to Rome, especially after the terrorist attack we had, we had in 1982, he decided to come and visit the synagogue, and he wanted to be invited. So we invited him. So this is an important sign for the Christian world uh, toward the final reconciliation. And actually, the Pope also went to Jerusalem after that, uh, and he put a letter on the wall asking forgive wow. to for the Shoah. Great leadership by uh, Pope John Paul II. We hope that uh, this uh, Benedictus uh, XVI will continue in this. Uh, he will probably do, because he was behind John Paul II all his life. So I'm sure that everything is going to change now. Uh, Michaela, you hear about rising anti-Semitism in other parts of Europe, especially north of the Alps in Germany and so on. Do you feel any increase in anti-Semitism in Rome these days? Well, I feel an increase of ignorance everywhere. And as soon as there is ignorance, we are all in danger. I'm not talking only about the Jews. I'm talking about any kind of minorance, minority. Minorities, yeah. Yeah, so we are all in danger. I'm talking about immigrants. I'm talking about black people. Uh, they, we are all in trouble with the, when there is ignorance around. And now these right parties, especially in Italy, La Lega, these people are very xenophobic, and so they, they don't like uh, strangers. But I can't really consider myself a stranger since uh, I've been living in Rome for 2,000 years. Oh. My friends are first-generation Romans. We are those who never left the city. Right. Michaela, can you tell me, please, what your website is if travelers want to learn more about uh, the Roman ghetto? Oh, sure. It's www.jewishroma.com www.jewishroma.com Michaela Pavancella, thank you very much for helping us better understand the Jewish community and the historic ghetto of Rome. Thank you, everybody. Ciao, mille grazie. Ciao, mille grazie a te. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. It's in the radio section at our website, ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.